we are in danger of becoming virtual and remote globally. And that's a really bad thing. And if I ruled the world, and frankly, I think I should at times, I would make sure that everybody encourages a mix of hybrid work where there is some remote and virtual work that makes absolute sense. It saves money, it saves time, and it can still be as collaborative and productive. It's been proven. But there would also be a connection within a face-to-face bricks and mortar type of workplace, whether that's a factory or a warehouse or an office or a working environment of some kind where people get together. And I've started talking to clients about it and asking them to create opportunities to get people together. Now, I know that we're still in the depths of a pandemic. I know that COVID is probably never going to go away. There'll be new variants and uh, there'll be plagues in our world, just like there's always been famine and pestilence and war. I'm sure these things will continue. But people need people. Once upon a time, there were tens of thousands of makers struggling. Every day they built for hours and hours, but didn't ship and didn't earn enough income. One day, the No Code Wealth podcast and newsletter came to help them find a way. Because of this, makers became founders and earned the money they deserve. Because of this, founders can have growth, freedom, and wealth until tomorrow no code becomes the next big skill that changes the future of humanity. That's what I'm all about. Hello, my name is Abdulaziz and from an ethical hacker to a European Ivy League business graduate with a master's of science in entrepreneurship to a hypnotherapist to a growth marketer, I've lost everything twice, but I refuse to give up. So now I'm rebuilding my life one more time 1% a day. The No Code Wealth podcast and newsletter are for the makers and founders who have the proactivity, perspective, and persistence to go on this journey with me and get the answers about money, marketing, and mindsets so that makers become earners, earners become founders, and founders get freedom and create wealth. And thank you all so much for the support. This podcast now is ranking nicely on Apple in the entrepreneurship category, top 200 in San Francisco, top 100 in Australia, top 60 in Germany, top 50 in the United Kingdom, top 50 in Spain, top 50 in the Netherlands, top 30 in Sweden, and top 25 in Italy. And this week, I'll reach a total of 200 episodes on both my podcasts, with 120 interviews published in 50 days. So please keep supporting, rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing. And if you are interested in my mentoring services to help with your business goals, especially when it comes to marketing, networking, as well as podcasting, finding your podcast uniqueness, reaching out to great guests, getting ranked on Apple, conducting interesting interviews, podcast promotion, and more, send me an email to mentor at storybonding.com, M-E-N-T-O-R at storybonding.com, or message me on Twitter, the best place to message me, No Code Wealth, and let's begin a conversation. My guest today, and it's an honor, a pleasure, and a privilege, is Henry Rose Lee. Henry is one of the few experts in intergenerational diversity. 
This is the immersion science and management skill of maximizing the engagement, collaboration, and productivity within and across the five distinct generations in today's workplace. Henry shares ways to adapt your leadership and management style to get the best out of people. From fresh Gen Z talent, 1824, career developing millennials, 25 to 40, and energetic and experienced 40 to 65 plus employees. Henry is a speaker who delivers immediate usable insights and tools which increase collaboration and performance while reducing attrition. She also busts myths about the youngest talent, Gen Z in particular, in the workplace, as well as giving everyone practical ways to motivate and engage them. Henry's expertise in this field comes from 15 years working for companies such as Filofax and Salter in business development and sales, where performance and results are demanded. Henry, how are you today? I'm really good. And what about you? How are you? I'm great, enthusiastic, excited, and enthusiasm in many ways. When you look at the root of it, it means infused with the energy of the gods. So that's what I'm all about. And to begin with one of my most favorite new questions, which is this. Henry, these days, these weeks, in this period, what seems to be something you think about often that keeps on returning and staying on your mind, whether it's something that you value, something you're trying to improve, or something you truly care about? I think that in these days, with all of the change that we have in the world, there are two things that I keep thinking about. One of them is work-related and the other one is kind of person-related. So the work-related one is really about how the future of work has already arrived and I almost missed it. So uh, before the pandemic that has taken the world by storm, we were moving towards a more automated workplace and remote and virtual working, but we hadn't all got there. So for example, I had been coaching virtually for years but most of my other work was face-to-face. And so that's what I focus on as the work thing now, the fact that we need to be aware that evolutions or even revolutions in the workplace are always happening, sometimes with a, a very big move and a sudden move, and sometimes with a smaller move, a tweak, a slight change. That, that's the thing uh, professionally that I focus on. Personally, I think I focus on the fact that I need to become as fit and healthy as I can. And I don't know about you, but most of my life I've spent working on my brain and not necessarily working on my body. So I've tried to get fitter and now I think about that every day. And in fact, the first thing I do is not check my email or my WhatsApp or any other channel. I have some uh, activity. That's the first thing I do. I get on my electric bike or I walk around the roads and I do a bunch of exercises and then I start my day. So those are my two things. Thank you. And if I understood you correctly, the two things are, well, in your work, you're involved a lot in evolutions and revolutions, which are defined. Evolution is an incremental change. And you mentioned that it's a small uh, things that can be changing and improving and revolutions are even black swan events where everything gets upside down and you almost missed 
the latest revolution where this world was moving towards automation and remote work, but the pandemic came to accelerate that and make the future be today. And therefore, you almost were not preparing yourself, although you were giving a lot of uh, like remote advice, remote mentorship, but it wasn't the focus or the focal point in your work, but now the world turned it into a necessity. And therefore, this almost missing this next wave is something that was on your mind professionally and how we can adapt more and more and be fit for it, which is the fitness is the next point as well. Not only being fit in your business life, but instead of doing what most entrepreneurs do, as, as soon as they roll out of bed, they check out what happened, their messages, their uh, how much money they made or lost their day or whatever to begin the day by getting plugged into the matrix again and getting into work. No, for a long time you have been working on your brain, but not as much on your body. So you begin with exercise, with focusing on your fitness, because that is an important value, especially now during coronavirus, where the fitter we are, the more likely we can uh, survive and have less symptoms if that happens. Is this a fair and correct understanding? That's absolutely perfect. Brilliantly and articulately and eloquently positioned. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I hear the poetry in, in what you said now, which makes me assume that you're someone who likes words and communication in a way that is more than just as a tool for work. Do you have such a hobby where you love to read a lot? Maybe you were inspired by public speakers and maybe Churchill in some way and you admired him and wanted to be that? Or maybe you scribble around some poetry and creative writing in your free time? I think it might be a little bit of both. Since I was a child, I've been interested in reading and writing. And I was the sort of small child who, as soon as I could write, I used to write poetry. And I, I found a piece of poetry when I was, I think I was aged about nine when I wrote it. It's absolutely terrible, but I probably thought it was good at the time. So yes, I like to write and I've written five books and I love to read and I do like Churchill very much. And uh, I think one of the things that he said, which I really liked, is um, never give up. And he said that three times. So he must have meant it. Yes. And that relates to you as a little girl. When you wrote your poem, you did not give up on writing because it was bad, only because you believed in it and you believed in yourself. Or maybe you didn't even receive negative feedback. So I'd like to ask you about that. Entrepreneurs in the age of social media there is this fear, and you remember in my introduction, I mentioned that there is this issue with a lot of uh, people who create, is that sometimes they wait for their creation to be perfect before they release it, but because of human nature, or as Moshe Feldenkrai said, there is no limit to improvement. Well, you can stay forever improving your product, never releasing it, or your piece of poetry, etc. How do you deal with that um, possible criticism and negative things that even one or two percent loud people will give to your work that allows you to be prolific and have a more realistic and productive pers perspective on this? I think there are two responses to that question. Um, I think one of them is about feeling 
and the other one is about being professional. So the feeling one is whenever I write something, that it's a child, it's like a baby. And when somebody says that they don't like it, that hurts, you know, that's my creation. However, I've learned over the years, especially since I was nine years old, that you can't write something for everybody. You can't please everyone. So you must look inside your soul. You must look inside your heart and do what you believe is right. I think professionally, I learned probably about 20 years ago that commercial viability is what I need to look for. So the moment that a piece of work, whether it's written or it's business, whether it's coaching, consultancy, whatever it might be, as soon as I get to the point where I think that is good enough for the client and the amount of money that may change hands, it's commercially viable, then I stop. Otherwise, I'm going to tinker with it. I'm going to play with it for the rest of my life and I won't make any money. And one of the biggest challenges with being an entrepreneur is knowing that A, you're not perfect, and B, you need to find that commercial viability in order to get it across to whoever it is that you're trying to get the message across to or to sell to. Because otherwise, C, you're going to go bankrupt. You're going to have no money very fast. Brilliant. So what I am hearing, and again, correct me if this is wrong, and I love that you always give a two-pronged answer to everything. So the first one is this. When you write, you allow that creative ability that is childlike to come across and to play and that child is sensitive and therefore criticism will hurt it but you have what you have learned is instead of opening the doors of judgment to everyone it's you focus on your heart whatever your heart believes and trusts and judges as good that is good no matter what anyone would say which is really really valuable, but it seems to me to be contradictory to the next point. So please tell me how do you mix them both in a way that works? Because normally, if you close yourself to the criticism of other people, well, there is a reduction in noticing feedback and in being able to create that commercial viability, which is the next point that instead of focusing on you tinkering around and trying to reach perfection, you think what is commercially viable, which means you have to be in tune with the clients and their needs and every little thing they might want and wish for, and then think, okay, for this amount of money, I make sure I provide more value than that amount, but I don't keep on working on it forever until I go bankrupt just trying to give a million dollars worth of value to someone paying me uh, 500 or a thousand or whatever. So as long as I give them five times more or 10 times more, then I move on because I'm a business and I need more revenue, which is the oxygen for me to be able to help people even better. Well, is this a fair understanding? And if so, what is your comment on this? It is a fair understanding. And I think the challenge that we all face is that delicate balance between commercial viability, something being good enough and uh, worth the value of invoicing somebody or passing it as a key message to somebody and inside your heart, what you want to do and what you believe is right. And I don't think it's easy. I try to get the best balance I can between those things. Um, this is what I try and do. I cannot put my hand on my heart and say I'm always perfectly attuned and always get it right. But I think it's a good thing to do that for most of us, if we want to make money, 
that means that we're going to have other people, um, other organizations, other objects, other ideas that we're going to connect with. And that means that the baby is no longer ours. It's a shared child. And that's what helps me to reach that commercial viability where I say, okay, I've done enough work on it. The client or the customer or the recipient seems happy. I'm going to stop there. And the most famous um, people who, who spend so much time tinkering are often musicians and composers because music is never ending and they will work very, very hard. And history is littered with all sorts of people who probably could have made a much better living if they had not played around with their music so much. And I'll give you two examples. There was a French composer called Ravel and he did a number of great pieces of work, but he did very few because he kept playing with them and changing them and tinkering with them and amending them. And then you look at Bach, I think it was J.S. Bach, the oldest Bach, and he had 11 children and had music for a living. And he had to literally create pieces of music every single day. And so he got into commercial viability very quickly. I love that. And I love your focus on being prolific because in many time, many ways, this is how I think about it even further when it comes to content. And I haven't shared this publicly before, but it's something that is my own perspective. Each piece of content is one new door or one new roadway that someone can discover you across. And therefore, the more roadways you have in the world, the more people will follow those breadcrumbs to find you so that you can help them and make the world a better place. If you focus on making one road a super highway, well, only the people in that direction that will come across it will find you and the rest of the universe will not. So more roads in many ways so that you can help people is better than one super perfect uh, gold-plated superhighway that is only going to one small town or uh, north, up north or whatever, where only you're limited by the people who can come across it and therefore you limit your impact. And although that is different to what you mentioned, that this is the thought that was triggered on my mind. And to ask you then again, yes, for a long time you focused on your brain and not on your body's fitness. Well, even further, to sustain a career over decades, you cannot burn out. You need time where you unwind and when you can relax and when you can let go of all troubles and feel alive. What has been to you the thing or the few things that allowed you to let go of the troubles of the day, to feel alive and to recharge your batteries throughout the decades? There are a number of things, as you can imagine, that allow me to recharge my batteries and to let go and to relax and have downtime, because you're right, otherwise I would just work all the time like most entrepreneurs. So for me, it's a number of things. One of them is family. I have very close family who I love very much indeed. And when I connect with them, it always gives me something that nothing else can deliver to me. Um, I have um, a husband and my husband means a lot to me, as do my stepchildren and my extended family. On top of that, I love dancing. You can get me to dance and I'm really bad at it. I have to admit, I'm a really bad dancer, but I don't care. When I get on the dance floor, it kind of empties and that's probably so that people won't get killed by my flailing limbs, but I love dancing. And so I'll often relax with a good piece of music and throwing my body around. I love music and I love going to the theater. So uh, being able to connect with either rock music or with classical music, 
uh, with jazz, with all types of music, that's wonderful as well. And I think that reading, as I said already, sometimes just being alone and reading an amazing book can be wonderful. Thank you. And since you often give two-pronged answers, I have two questions, and this is going to be beautiful. One, what does your extended family, your uh, relationship with your children, uh, with your grandchildren, with your husband, what insights or help or support or enrichment did this give to your work as an intergenerational expert? Did it influence you both in how you treated each generation within your family, as well as lessons you extracted from there to apply to your work? So that is question one. And two, actually by not caring, like you said, and flailing around and throwing your body and dancing, well, isn't that what all entrepreneurs should have as a perspective when they do their creation? And therefore, did you have this perspective even before the dance or is the dance uh, the dojo or the teacher that taught you to do what your heart desires when you don't need commercial viability 100% but in other ways and therefore that is something that was a source and a training for your emotional strength so again your family the lessons and the dynamics between uh, dealing with your family and intergenerational expertise, as well as dance and its ability to give you mental toughness? The first question is perhaps the most powerful question that you've asked me, because you have got to the heart of the matter immediately. Having a family, so a husband and stepchildren and extended uh, relations, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandchildren, all of those things, the insights that they have given me is that I now treat my intergenerational work as a family. So I realize that in a family, my own family, there are older and younger people and we collaborate, we support and help each other. And older learns from younger and younger learns from older. And if we fall over at any age, there's someone there to pick us up. And I now see organizations and businesses in the same way as a family. And that's why I like different generations inside organizations, because that family is supposed to work together and collaborate. We're not all supposed to be the same age, the same shape, the same color. We're supposed to be different. And that's where the richness and diversity lies. So yes, absolutely, my family has given me those insights. And it's given me the sense of adapting to different people and situations, adapting to different life stages, because someone who is older and has many years of experience will see the world in a different place from somebody who has perhaps only been alive for a couple of decades. Maybe they're only in their 20s and they haven't seen as much of life, but they may have a different view because they're more connected to the current technological innovations or inventions. So yes, family is everything, and it absolutely has informed my intergenerational work by seeing that parallel in families inside organizations. As for dancing, no, no one taught me. Perhaps I'd be better if they had. The whole point was that when I was tiny, any time music was put on, I would move my body. And I think I'm the same now. I've even been videoed at parties and conferences when suddenly somebody puts music on and I start tapping my foot and moving my body around. But I think for me, it was just one of those things that because I'm quite auditory and my visual skills are very poor because I'm face blind, um, I'm auditory and therefore I like to listen to sound. 
I like sound and I like moving to it. So I think that's why I've always danced. And for me, it is a way to relax. It is certainly not a way to look good because I don't look good on any dance floor doing anything, but I just enjoy it. And therefore that's a part of me as well. I love those answers. And typically someone will focus on the family part and I will, but my curiosity is driving me somewhere else. You have been prolific in writing, but you as an auditory person, I'm sure your own way and approach to writing is normal to you, but fascinating to everyone else. So I'm wondering, since as a writer, when I write, I actually focus on the melody of the sentences and the paragraphs and in a way if it sounds right in some way and i know it's not even that word that will describe it but the closest is if the sentence sounds right it will feel right and therefore i know it will communicate powerfully and it will have a spring in its step if we might say since you're speaking about dancing to you how does your auditory mind make you approach the writing process? And what do you look for when writing to know that it's good? Is it the melody? Is it the sound? Is it just the richness of the vocabulary because you have a rich one? Or how do you approach it in a personal way? I think that writing is a very personal thing to everybody. So your style and your approach will be unique to you as mine is to me. My auditory mind has meant that I often hear the words as a melody like you, like a sound or a song, and it can be lyrical and lilting, and it can take me high or it can take me low. And I think that when I'm looking for inspiration, it often comes to me as a ping. So if you imagine a submarine and it has sonar, and that sonar pings against um, the object that it's looking for, and that pings back against the submarine walls. That to me is what happens when I get inspiration for either a story or a phrase or even a key word. What's added to that is the fact that probably about, I'm trying to work out when this happened, about 25 years ago, I learned to be a voiceover artist. My husband, I met in a studio. He uh, ran... um, his own uh, business and in fact was in rock music for quite a long time and then had a, a music studio and then a voice studio and I was introduced to him and asked to learn to be a voiceover and once he taught me to be a voiceover that also informed the music of my speaking and my writing and I've never really looked back. I love doing voiceover work and sometimes if a client won't give me any work I'll write my own voiceover work but otherwise that's how it informs me that melody and that ping that comes to me of an idea which is sometimes a sound or a phrase or a whole sentence. I love that and I have to focus on that ping because all time uh, poets they used to call that like the uh, capricious devil of inspiration while more modern writers, whether even Stephen King or others, while they say, well, to me, inspiration comes every day at 9 a.m. because what they believe in is write for three or four or five hours every day, which is a lot, but that's their professional career. And within those, there will be gold that will open up the floodgates of inspiration. And therefore they believe that great writing comes from a lot of uninspired writing, that some point you will capture yourself in the right moment, and that waiting for inspiration will lead to a lot less of a prolific 
life, while to you it's the ping of the uh, of the sonar of the submarine, which is really cool and a great metaphor. Well, how do you approach this? Is it because you're not professionally and mainly a writer, therefore you can allow yourself to take your time and find inspiration rather than do industrial levels of writing in order to extract the elixir out of that? Or do you believe as well and do you do that kind of work Well, you will write every day or every week and trust the process that at some point a nugget of gold will come that will lead to inspiration. I'm much more like Stephen King. Um, I do industrial amounts of writing every day. So I write articles, I write posts for LinkedIn, I write blogs, um, I write programs for clients. So I'm always writing. What I trust, though, is that every now and again, I'll have a conversation with somebody I wasn't expecting, or I'll read something that was unpredicted, or I'll hear something which comes out of the blue, and that's my ping. So I'm writing anyway for a living. But what happens is every now and again, somebody says something, or I read something, or I hear something and think, yes, that's it. And then I can't get it down on paper fast enough. I can't type it fast enough because I'm so desperate to take that nugget, that piece of gold, and do something with it. So that's what happens to me. But I am writing every day because I have to. I love that. And I have to relate that to intergenerational expertise because of the different backgrounds of each generation. What is normal to them might be the ping to another generation leading to a creative idea that if people stayed within their generation, they wouldn't get. And therefore, isn't that noticing that creativity comes from diversity? And diversity of life experience is one of the main ways that people's brains will work differently and therefore they will have different perspectives and therefore they will contribute ideas that will illuminate new sides to something that can create a new ping, like you said, and a new creative order to things, allowing companies to innovate more and things to always be fresh because they're always having new perspectives melting in the pot. Well, is that something that you noticed and even turbocharged your work and belief in intergenerational diversity? Or were they a bit more unrelated, but you found that over time and now through our conversation that this is a ping for this fact? I think that I came to a gradual realization. So it was more of an evolution across my work with the intergenerational piece. I discovered that when you put older and younger people together, you get a dream team. And it first came out in work that I did for sales organizations when they were looking at trying to sell more product or more service. And I would put older and younger people together and say, if we get them to mentor each other or reverse mentor, if we get them to collaborate, if we put them as co-leads on a project, if we change the way that they have been doing their work by getting them to work with each other, what we will find is that we get the structure, stability and strategy from the older worker who has more experience and we get the innovation, novelty, variety and change the energy for new things from the younger worker who has less experience and who is unlikely to say, uh, very unlikely to say, 
um, oh, I tried that once and it didn't work. Or last year we did that and we didn't have good results. They just see something new ahead of them, these young people, and they believe in it and they're excited by it. So when you put younger and older together, the true diversity is not just in ideas, it's in approaches. And it's not just in approaches, it's in the way that they work together or even talk with one another. And that is very exciting to see an organization be able to create such richness of ideas and working practices by putting different people together. I love it. Especially it reminds me of Edward de Bono, who is one of like the foremost creativity experts since what the second the sixties or the seventies. And one of the things he says that the biggest killer of creative ideas is this is just like X. And therefore, he says, instead of focusing on what the similarity of a new idea to something existing, focus on the differences, and therefore you will find the facets of it that can enrich what you're already doing. So what you said is that the older generations can bring the structures, but they might bring with them the baggage of being jaded by things that didn't work, while the younger generation, they bring the energy and the innovation and that non-baggage because they haven't tried things and therefore they don't know whether it will work or not and therefore trying again in a new way might end up working this time leading to dynamism rather than companies being dinosaurs the companies will have both the the strength and the wisdom of the dinosaurs with uh, with the youth of the amoeba or whatever that is creating the next generation of creatures in this world. Well, this is a pleasure. And to dive a bit deeper into your own experience, your own wisdom, and your own thoughts, what is something coming from your heart that seems to be some advice or a lesson or something worth sharing that you believe the world needs to hear that could be advice to the listeners and to the audience that you believe is important to have in mind? There is one thing that I believe is very important in these complex and volatile times, and that's connection. And face-to-face connection is really what I'm talking about. As AI and other technologies really take seat in our world and become the most important way of communicating, we are in danger of becoming virtual and remote globally, and that's a really bad thing. And if I ruled the world, and frankly, I think I should at times, I would make sure that everybody encourages a mix of hybrid work where there is some remote and virtual work that makes absolute sense. It saves money, it saves time, and it can still be as collaborative and productive. It's been proven. But there would also be a connection within a face-to-face bricks and mortar type of workplace, whether that's a factory or a warehouse or an office or a working environment of some kind where people get together. And I've started talking to clients about it and asking them to create opportunities to get people together. Now, I know that we're still in the depths of a pandemic. I know that COVID is probably never going to go away. There'll be new variants and uh, there'll be plagues in our world, just like there's always been famine and pestilence and war. I'm sure these things will continue. But people need people. And so I'm talking to clients about what they do to encourage people to get together occasionally. So, for example, in 
induction and onboarding when you first join a new organization, the best way to do it is face-to-face, even with social distancing. Whereas if you're talking to somebody about a piece of learning that's health and safety, that can be done remotely on e-learning or a webinar. So I think it's about creating opportunities to get people together. That's the message I'd like to share with the world. I love what you're saying. You are absolutely correct. And if I might inject and take it a bit further, that remind me of reminds me of Desmond Morris's book, The Human Zoo, where he actually is saying that humans, when we are living in cities, we suffer from a kind of uh, psychological imbalance that happens to animals in zoos and that we are creating our own zoos and we need time with other people in nature. So yes, what you're saying, because if we work remotely, that's being confined to isolation within a zoo, which is even worse than just being roaming free in the zoo. And to take it even further, if they can go in nature, if people can have a picnic in the park safely, if they can go like on the mountains and just not camp like that necessarily, but just take a walk in nature and get to know each other in that inspiring environment. That is also something necessary and needed because we went from nature to the human zoos and the the metropolis. And then we went from metropolis to mini prisons within our rooms. And that cannot be psychologically healthy. If you have any comment on this, please share, as well as if people want to learn more about you, they wish to read your books, they want to discover and explore your work and maybe even contact you to help them with their needs, what are the best places? So comment on what I said and then share your links and the best places for people to discover more. I absolutely love your comment about the human zoo. And I do believe that as we humans have become we believe, uh, more sophisticated. We have also become poorer of spirit. And I believe that it is very important for us to get out in nature. And in fact, there are research papers that show that when people go into a forest or a wood, they're surrounded by green things, they can think more clearly, their heartbeat slows, uh, they breathe more deeply, they use more oxygen. And of course, oxygen is so clever because it energizes the brain, but also relaxes it. So I'm with you. I think the human zoo is a, is a problem. And one of the things I'm starting to see is that swathes of people are leaving big cities and they're going to smaller towns and villages uh, in many capitalized societies uh, in order to find that sense of nature. So I totally agree with it. And when the weather is good where I live, I think getting outside and feeling the air on my face and going for a walk rather than being on my boring electronic bike is a much better way of doing uh, a human nature reserve rather than being inside my office with the bike in the corner. Um, I think in terms of contacting me, the easiest thing to do is to Google Henry Rose Lee. So go on Chrome or Google or Firefox or whichever your browser is and just Google Henry Rose Lee because everything will come up. That will be my website, my LinkedIn pages. And uh, if you want to read a bit more, go on my website. Otherwise, you can go on Amazon and key in Henry Rose Lee and you'll find the books that I've got there. Um, And every so often on my website, I offer free downloads of my books because as you know, as well as I do, books don't really make money anymore. What they do is encourage people to connect with you. And that's what I'm after as well. So just Google Henry Rose Lee. You'll find me. 
Thank you. It was a pleasure. I'll make sure to write your website in the description. For me, the best place is Twitter. If you, you can, you wish to contact me, you can DM me there at No Code Wealth. And Henry, it was a pleasure, an honor, a privilege, and I wish you a brilliant day. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for setting this up. I have really enjoyed it. And I have found your questions absolutely inspiring. So thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm.